0: Good morning again everyone. If you've got a Bible with you do keep it open at Micah chapter 1 and in your service sheet you'll find um, a sermon outline. That's the the territory we're covering this morning Um, and while you're finding that I was flying into Sydney one night um, and it was everything that you could hope for in business travel. It was comfortable, it was on time and it was uneventful until we began our descent. Uh, Apparently Sydney was experiencing electrical storms, the There was a message from the flight deck and they said that we should expect some turbulence and so the cabin crew, they remained polite but they also became increasingly direct. And then nothing happened. Time went by and the cabin atmosphere changed. It was a little chilled but then conversation started again and everything went back to normal. About five minutes later, or maybe even a little bit more, we heard the engine spool right up, which was unusual because we were descending, and then suddenly we dropped. And from that moment until we touched down, we experienced the kind of turbulence that would unsettle even the most seasoned of travellers. Well, as if speaking from the flight deck, Micah announces, we're about to hit turbulence, My guess is few of us will have read Micah very much. Some of you will know the famous verse from chapter six and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is literally the poster verse for Micah. You'll find it on jerseys, on notepads. Some people even have it tattooed to their bodies, which is strange because in context, It's actually a word of judgment against the people of Israel. This is what they're failing to do. We're going to learn some important lessons about the character of our God this term. Our God who takes sin seriously, whose patience has limits and who is absolutely committed to justice. Listen to this coming attraction from chapter two. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil. I'm planning disaster against these people from which you cannot save yourselves. You'll no longer walk proudly for it'll be a time of calamity. Micah wants us to know sin has consequences evil is serious and God will judge human wickedness including ours and it's for those reasons and more that some preachers they often either gloss over or avoid books like Micah altogether preferring to accentuate the positives of God's love and God's kindness but that approach is misguided and it's ultimately unloving Because the first step towards forgiveness means telling the truth. And so, to avoid books like Micah will leave you with a stunted and dangerously unbalanced picture of God's good character. If we're going to know God rightly, we must confront the reality of His commitment to justice. He will judge. And Micah is going to lead us into some hard places. But he will also teach us, admittedly it'll take a while, but he'll also teach us that God's delight is to show mercy. Micah finishes his book by asking, Who is a God like you who pardons and forgives? And so seen this way, mercy only makes sense when you consider the judgment from which you've been saved. And all the more for us who read Micah through the lens of the sin-bearing death of the Lord Jesus, because we know the price of God's mercy. And so with that by way of introduction, it's time to put your tray table away, your seat in the upright position and fasten your seatbelt because through Micah, things are about to get real. So I'm going to pray as we take a closer look at chapter one. Won't you join me as I do that? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your life-giving word and we pray this morning for a work of your spirit to guide us in all truth and that we would sit humbly under your truth and that we would respond in obedience for Jesus sake amen well you can see on the sermon outline where are we and how did we get here if you think about it over the last three months we've been spending our time in the book of Acts we watched familiar figures like Peter preach boldly about the need for forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ we traveled with Saul as he met Jesus on that famous road to Damascus. But now we turn from the familiar pages of the New Testament to a road less traveled. Micah is called a minor prophet, not because he's unimportant, but simply because his prophecy is relatively short compared to Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. He was active in Israel some eight centuries before Jesus was born, which might raise the first question, How on earth can such an obscure ancient text possibly have anything like a connection with people like us in modern Australia? It's a good question. Why are we spending term two unpacking this part of God's word? After all, given our level of education and technological sophistication, modern Australia is light years away from anything that Micah would have experienced. But on closer inspection, we have more in common with Micah's world than we might realise. Like Micah, we live in an age of incredible prosperity. Living standards in Israel were rising and the outlook was positive. But like modern Australia, when you scratch below the surface of this, pri- this prosperity, there was a more sinister reality. Yes, wealth was increasing but it was increasingly concentrated in the hands of a few. There was a real estate boom fostered by a a mix of dishonesty and greed. The result of which was widespread injustice. I wonder if any of that sounds familiar. What's more, as Micah's message unfolds, we find that God's people were spiritually complacent even presumptuous in their approach to God, like some modern Christians can be, figuring that they were God's chosen people. Well, what could possibly go wrong? And so chapter three, the Lord says, they'll look for the Lord's support and say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. And so while the people of Israel were outwardly religious, While they could tell you all sorts of things about the God of Israel inwardly, to borrow that language from James, God's people were spiritual adulterers. Or to put that another way, instead of standing out through their heartfelt obedience to the God who saved them from slavery in Egypt, Israel became shaped by the corrupt nations around them. And to give you one extreme example, King Ahaz is mentioned in verse one. Well, he takes celebrating spiritual diversity to a whole new level. Listen to what he's like, two chronicles. He made idols for worshipping the Baals. Now that means he's got no issue worshipping the God of Israel alongside all of the other gods of the nations around him. That's a bad start. What else did he do? He burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnon and he sacrificed his children in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations. This is the king. Israel is rotten. And it's into this context of moral decay the word of the Lord came to Micah, son of Morasheth. This is going to be a passionate, urgent, uncomfortable, and sometimes brutal word from God intended to jolt his people out of their spiritual complacency that they might repent and turn back. Because the judge has arrived. Follow with me from verse 2. Hear you peoples, all of you, listen earth and all who live in it that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, verse three, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the heights of the earth. Now, it's possible that some of the Israelites heard this and thought, oh, that's terrific. The Lord's coming, brilliant. But God's complacent people were about to learn the wisdom of Solomon. When justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. And the particular sin that's on view here is the sin of idolatry. Uh, We might associate idolatry with the bowing down to idols and that can certainly be true but for us I think it's more subtle. He didn't realise it when he said this but actually the actor George Clooney provides us a really good insight into what idolatry looks like. There's a funny thing about fame he says and that's the idol on view here. The truth is you run as fast as you can towards it because it's everything you want. And idols are like that. They'll take over your life. He goes on and then you get there and it's shocking how immediately you become enveloped in this world that is incredibly restricting. I don't know if I feel too sorry for George Clooney, but whatever your idol is, be it wealth, fame, sex, power, career, whatever, and we all have them, it'll never deliver. It'll never deliver on the promise of freedom. But worse than that, When we divide our allegiance, try to serve God and to serve our chosen idol, we steal glory that belongs to God. It's not absolute. It doesn't work in every situation. But author Tim Keller offers a good diagnostic for identifying the possible idols in your life. He asks, where does your mind go when it slips into neutral?" When there's nothing else to think about, what comes into your mind? He says those things, sometimes good things, family, career, marriage, sex, and so on, gifts we can love and prioritise over and above the good gift giver himself. For their part, despite promising uphold the commandment you shall have no other gods but me Israel gave themselves over to all manner of gods trusting in the counterfeit gods of their age and we see the result verse 2 Hear, you peoples all of you listen earth and all who live in it that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you The God of justice has arrived and as I've said before and I say it again now, deep down we want this justice, perfect justice. We want a definitive answer to evil. We want perpetrators held to account. We want victims to receive justice. We might even protest for justice and yet how strangely quiet, even resentful we can become when the plumb line of God's perfect justice gets applied to us. How easily the Israelites, like us, deceive themselves into thinking that a bit of worldliness really doesn't matter. God will forgive, and besides, God has bigger things to worry about than my comparatively insignificant moral failings. And when you do this, you detune the seriousness of sin. When we embrace the self-deception that says, my sins really aren't worth getting worked up about. Just like the Israelites, we begin then to take on the culture around us. And then suddenly abstaining from premarital sex, well, that just becomes old-fashioned. Overcharging your clients, well, that's just shrewd business. Gossip and slander, well, they're just tools for career progression. Someone will object. I suspect people objected to Micah in his time. I've avoided the big sins. I still go to the temple. I still fund ministry. God forgives. You're going too far. And the modern objection might be, well, all this talk of sin and judgment, is going to have a harmful effect on people's mental health to which I say, maybe. That's possible. But arguably, avoiding the reality of sin has far worse consequences than making us feel bad. And I say that as a sinner myself. I'm in the same boat as anyone else. And yet, sadly, despite multiple warnings, Israel refuses to turn back. Just listen to verse 6 and following. Therefore I'll make Samaria, that's the capital of the north, a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I'll pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All the idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I'll destroy all her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, that's one way to fund ministry, as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. Sin is personal. And as the famous preacher Charles Spurgeon put it, Sin is a defiance of God to his face, a stabbing of God so far as man can do it to the very heart. And because sin is personal, God responds personally using the nation of Assyria first and then the nation of Babylon. He's going to bring about his justice. Listen to verse six. I will make Samaria a heap of rubble. Verse seven, I will destroy all her images. Verse 12, disaster comes from the Lord. And in case we missed it, verse 15, I will bring a conqueror. I told you we were headed for turbulence. And here we are. But you must never think that judgment brings God any pleasure. Pleasure. Actually, it grieves him as Micah takes on the character of the Lord. Listen to verse 8. Because of all this, I'll weep and wail. I'll go about barefoot and naked. I'll howl like a jackal and moan like an owl, for Samaria's plague is incurable. It's spread to Judah. It's reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself." Even if the nation won't, Micah, he will grieve over Israel's sin. And in doing so, we get a really helpful insight into what judgment does to the God who saves. Yes, God is determined to bring about his justice. But if I can speak a little bit loosely, it's almost as if judgment cuts across the grain. Have a listen to what the prophet Isaiah said. He was around the same time as Micah. The Lord will rise up to do his work. That is, he will judge. But it's his strange work, it's his alien task. Or the prophet Ezekiel As long as, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. So if judgment brings him such grief, why bother? Why does the God of justice bother? Well, two simple reasons. He loves all that he has made. And his absolute goodness means he will not let evil slide. And when push comes to shove, we don't want him to. We want justice even if we don't want it applied to us. And nowhere is this love and justice seen more visible than in the death of the Lord Jesus, as the God of perfect justice absorbs his own wrath against evil that we might be forgiven. For Micah, of course, the event of the cross was a long way over the horizon. That's true, but in the context of a hard word of judgment, he points us in that direction. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives? This is the territory we were going to cover this term. It's going to be hard, but it's going to be good. So we see God's good character, his commitment to justice, but his delight to show mercy. Let me pray. Gracious God, we do thank you for your patience towards us. And when we were still far off and enemies in our minds because of our evil behaviour, you met us in your son and brought us home. Would you enable us by your spirit to sit under this heavy word to examine our own lives but to cling to the mercy that delights you. Your son who for the joy set before him endured the cross for people like us that we would find forgiveness and eternal life. Father, hear our prayer through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.